Hi, and welcome to Extra Serving, a podcast by Nations Restaurant News. I'm your host, Holly Petri. Today, we're going to be talking about the possibility of Chick-fil-A being forced to open on Sundays. A recent bill in New York State could force the notoriously closed on Sundays chain to open on the seventh day of the week because its location's on the thruway. The bill, which has a while to go before it's passed, could change the whole structure of Chick-fil-A locations in New York. Will they pull out of these locations over the scuffle? Next, we're going to be talking about Chuck E. Cheese. The brand has been undergoing a renovation for some time, ranging from updates to its menu to a reshuffle in its C-suite. This week, there were reports that the chain was exploring a sale. What does this mean for the brand? Finally, we'll be talking about Olive Garden and its latest milestone. The casual dining company surpassed the $5 billion mark in sales for the first time ever. We've seen plenty of surveys that Olive Garden is a favorite among consumers, especially Gen Z, and it finally seems like it's paying off for the legacy brand. This week's guest is Sawyer Hemsley, co-founder and chief brand officer of Crumble Cookies. Now, let's introduce my lovely co-hosts. I'm Sam Okus, editor-in-chief of Nations Restaurant News. And I'm Leanne Sinsmeister, managing editor of Nations Restaurant News. Well, guys, we did it. Our last show of the year. Yay. Amazing. We made it. Another year, another year in the Yep. <laughs> you know, I was doing our, so we do a galleries at the end of every year, dear listeners. And this one that I did this week was the highest um, listen to episodes of Extra Serving. And as I was writing it, I realized this is our fifth year of the podcast. Wow. Happy birthday. We're officially Happy no birth- longer a temperamental toddler, but just <laughs> an annoying little kid. <laughs> That sounds about right. What do you know about annoying little kids? Well, as a, not that I know much about five-year-olds, but uh, as I was just telling you about the screaming in my house, let's just say it wasn't the seven-year-old doing the screaming. <laughs> but it wasn't a five-year-old either. <laughs> yeah, it was me doing screaming as it happened. Sure. <laughs> no, it was very much the five-year-old. I believe that. Yep. I would believe that. Mm-hmm. I, if I was in your house, I'd be screaming too. Yes. Yay holidays. Happy holidays. (laughs) Let's just say when you have a place to put your kids, put your kids in the place. But, you know, all parents out there understand that Christmas break is pretty brutal to try to figure out how to occupy your kids, especially the lead up to Christmas Day, right? Because they're antsy, they're excited, they're amped up. Um, I don't want to just, you know, shove them in front of the TV and put Christmas movies on, although that does sound amazing. Uh, you know, so you got to occupy them. And uh, that's been a pretty difficult task for my wife and I this week. Let's put it that way. Yikes. I don't envy you at all. Thank you. I, w- but I wish Christmas this movies are great. What are your favorites? Oh, boy. Okay. Well, we've been having this discussion uh, uh, as a team via Slack, and there's been some agreement, uh, as most of us are are part of the same generation. I, you know, I'm, I am... Uh, beholden to home alone elf and uh, muppets christmas carol that's and and that tells you probably how old i am um in <laughs> as a 90s child slash early 2000s those are my those are my three go-tos um now my kids have also taken to home alone and elf but i cannot get them to sit for muppets christmas carol and i just think the muppets have run their course i my kids maybe this is just my kids my kids never really got into muppets um, we tried Sesame Street and wasn't, they just, I don't know, for some reason, puppets are just, guess, I guess, not their thing. But it, it, it sort of cuts me to the quick that they will not do Muppets Christmas Carol, but that's very dear to me. Because, I, I mean, I, I, 
was probably seven when that movie came out. So I don't know. It occupies a very special place in my heart. Liam, what about you? Um, You're a big I'm on, Christmas person. I'm on board with Elf uh, and the Muppets. Home Alone stresses me out, but I think that might be like an oldest child thing versus a youngest child thing in this group. Um, I'm like, absolutely not. There's too much chaos. This whole movie is just chaos. <laughs> um, but I'm also a fan of the Christmas rom-com. So, um, I mean, I love the Hallmark Christmas movies, but like some of my favorite like classics, what I consider classics are Serendipity, The Holiday, um, that kind of genre, um, of love actually Christmas. And then I, uh, yeah, I'm okay with love actually. It's not one of my favorites, but it's in that genre and I'll watch it most years. Uh, I also love white Christmas, which someone recently tried to tell me is not a Christmas movie. Um, but they're wrong. <laughs> so I'm putting that on the list. That's well. like a post-war movie. It's like a post-war I'm movie, like, right? It's not just a Christmas movie. It's also a war movie, but, uh, and it's also a musical. It's a lot of things. And it's actually a lot of things that I love as I'm talking about it. I'm like, that makes sense why I love this movie. Um, so yeah, those are, those are some of my favorites, but also I'm just constantly watching the Hallmark channel this time here. Yeah. I feel like Meet Me in St. Louis is a good Christmas movie. Mm, yep. Another classic. Oh, it's a classic. classic. Okay. Judy Garland. I don't, I don't know that one. Sam, you should watch it. It's beautiful. We'll see. I mean, if my kids won't watch Muppets, <laughs> I don't think they're going to watch black and white films, right? Nobody uh, said anything white. about your kids. Oh, is it Technicolor? I'm sorry. Well, yeah. It's I mean, Technicolor. I, I do need to, well, at nighttime, you know, of course. Uh, my wife and I, when we watch movies together, like I'm not, it's probably not going to be those either. It's probably going to be more in the love actually lane. Um, mm-hmm. But then um, some nights when Katie goes to bed early and I'm left to my own devices, I did watch Die Hard this year. And, you know, I've seen Die Hard multiple times. Um, and our colleague, Jonathan Mays, this is his favorite movie and did explain to me why it is a Christmas movie. There's a lot of people who don't believe this is a Christmas movie, but when Jonathan explained it to me, I'm like, oh, I did not understand all of these subtle sort of, um, like there's 12 bad guys there. The main woman's name is Holly. I didn't know all of those things. And so I revisited Die Hard to see it as a Christmas movie and, and I get it. I understand it. And, um, and so Die Hard. I'd like to go, I'm going to go watch, I think tonight, the movie, um, David Harbour's like an evil Santa violent night, something like that. Uh, oh, anyway, so like the, the action Christmas movie, uh, lane is one that I also, I have to, that's when I'm just left to my own devices at nighttime. I'm going to watch that. <laughs> that's very fair. I mean, you can introduce your kids to Die Hard. Sure. Yeah. That sounds like a great idea, Holly. <laughs> There's nothing wrong. I mean, you know, get them, get them exposed early. Sure. You know, there's nudity in that movie, right? <laughs> so anyway, Merry Christmas. Let's move on. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about Chick-fil-A. So I thought this story was really interesting. Um, so there's a bill in the New York uh, assembly that is saying that Chick-fil-A may have to open on Sundays uh, because of their locations on the thruway. Um, the bill will require every restaurant on the thruway to be open seven days a week. Um, so like I drive on the thruway all the time and there's a, there's like on the sign, it says Chick-fil-A closed Sunday at the top of the little label for Chick-fil-A. Um, so, I mean, I'm curious what you guys think about this bill. Who knows if it's even going to pass, but the fact that it's stirring up this, uh, maybe Chick-fil-A will be open on Sundays. I mean, what do you think this means for the brand or for the state? I mean, what what's going on? 
so I don't know enough about this bill to fully comment on its motive. Um, because if this was a, um, if this was sort of done as a dig to Chick-fil-A specifically, I don't know that maybe you guys know this better than me, your residents of New York, you, sh- you, you might know. Um, then that's pretty stupid. Um, like, <laughs> okay. So take a step back to, to, to put a bill forward that is conceivably anti-business, um, right? Because to tell a business what to do, that you have to be open seven days, that's that's an anti-business bill. And look, it's just, I'm not going to get into politics here, but like, don't do that. Like, you know, it's not going to have a lot of support if it's tell, trying to tell businesses what to do, right? Um, and you're going to lose interest from businesses wanting to participate in the throughway to to locate to the throughway if it's perceived that the government's trying to tell you how to run your business. So first thing, second thing, grant Chick-fil-A should be able to be grandfathered into they shouldn't have to comply with this bill if it passes. They should be grandfathered in because it's just that's that's again bad <laughs> to tell businesses that are already open that already have a lease agreement operations okay now we get to tell you how to run this third anybody who is mad at chick-fil-a for op- closing on sundays or thinks it's wrong or bad um get a grip people they get to do whatever they want and they make a gazillion dollars doing this it's a part of their values for crying out loud who cares i just I, I, I look again, I'm, I'll, I won't, I'll climb down off the soapbox here. Um, and I'm not going to wade into, you know, political, whatever, but like, why does it matter to people that Chick-fil-A closes on Sunday? Who cares? There are restaurants closed on Mondays and Tuesdays. And that frustrates me if I really want their food on Monday or Tuesday, but I also recognize their ability to do what they want as part of their values. Like go to Raising Cane's on Sunday, people who cares? It works for Chick-fil-A as a business model, and we sh- nobody should ever be told, you know, you have to do this um, it, a- as a business. And, you know, if this were, you know, a different situation where they were trying to tell, well, anyway, I'm not going to go down that route. Because, again, this is, <laughs> this is a lot of red flags. I got to kind of navigate this um, sort of down the middle. And I'm just going to say, just from a business perspective, we're a business podcast. Um, Chick-fil-A has made it a part of their values that they're closed on Sunday. And we should all accept that. And we should all be impressed that they manage to make as many billions of dollars as they do six days a week. And we should all learn from that. And if you don't like it, go take your business somewhere else. That's how the free market works, people. So I, um, you know, I, I don't understand. I, again, that's why I go back to, the, if this bill was done so maliciously toward Chick-fil-A, like, wow, that's bad politics. I'm not a politician and I try to avoid just even paying attention to it because all of it's messy, but that's bad politics because um, it just, it's, it's, that seems malicious and cruel. Now, if this is really like they actually want to, encourage businesses to be open seven days a week to the benefit of customers and the business of the throughway, then they have to make that clear to any businesses coming in, but give all existing businesses the right to be grandfathered into not doing it. Right. Um, so anyway, I, 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 I guess I'm just sort of reacting to a people who for some reason are mad that Chick-fil-A closes on Sunday. Cause I've, I've heard that from a number of people. 
Um, and I just, I'm just sort of like perplexed by that. Like, why do you care so much? <laughs> like, uh, come on. I, I, I don't know. Anyway, that's my thoughts. Clearly I have lots of them. Leanne, what are your opinions on this? Uh, what I think is really interesting is that I don't think this bill will accomplish what they <clears throat> want it to. And I mean that in the sense that like, you know, their stated goal is to provide more options for travelers and truckers, like people passing through the throughway on Sunday, which is a normal like travel, busy travel day. That's what they say their goal is. To Sam's point, their actual goal may very well be more like malicious toward Chick-fil-A. They might be targeting Chick-fil-A for being closed on Sundays. Who knows? Um, that's not for me to say. That's obviously just for Sam to say. Um, <laughs> however, <laughs> if this if this happens, and if, I mean, probably if this bill passes and Chick-fil-A is not grandfathered in, they will probably pull out of the travel centers and there will be lawsuits and legalities and whatever. But if on the off chance that this bill passes and Chick-fil-A is not grandfathered in and Chick-fil-A stays and those nine locations are now open on Sundays, the headlines everywhere, including on our own website, are going to be some Chick-fil-A's are now open on Sundays. And that's going to go nuts on Google SEO. And everyone in the tri-state area is going to be at those Chick-fil-A's on Sundays. And so first of all, it's going to make these travel centers busier and more chaotic um, with people who are not necessarily traveling through or commercial truckers. And it's going to be great for Chick-fil-A business. Like, so both of those stated goals are like, it's going to have, it would have the opposite effect. Now, like Sam said, I think the most likely outcome is that either this bill is squashed or it passes and Chick-fil-A uh, pursues like legal routes to, you know, continue being closed on Sundays and or pulls out entirely. But it's like, there's no, I don't see a best case scenario outcome for this bill. Like, I, I just, I cannot see it. And I mean, like, hey, more business for Chick-fil-A on Sundays, more business for the other restaurants and the travel centers on Sundays. Like, that's a positive outcome, but that's not what they're going for with this. And and well, the, so the 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 situation that Leanne described, right? That if if Chick Fil A does open on Sunday, it's not going to happen. It's it's you know Chick Fil A. If I'm remembering correctly, this was a few years ago, so I don't know if this has changed. But Chick Fil A opened a restaurant within Mercedes Benz Stadium in Atlanta, home of the Atlanta Falcons, and it's not open on Sundays. And Sundays is when the Falcons game happened. Um, so um, like they are very hardcore, not open on Sundays. I think. I think airports are their only exception. If I'm remembering that correctly, I think their airport locations might be open on Sunday. Am I getting that right? Um, you know, because of course, when you uh, operate know. on an, in an airport, you know, they're not truly the operator of that uh, location. The, the, you know, HMS host and the other um, <laughs> service companies are, are the ones that do that. But uh, let me also say something else. If you're a developer and you're looking for restaurants to um, fill your development, and you want to recruit, you know, good businesses. Um, Chick Fil A is, is one of them, right? Like, like if you would be stupid to say no to a Chick Fil A because they're not open on Sunday, because they're going to pull so many people into your development on every other day of the week, right? So, like, I guess my point is, it's just bad business to say we can't accept you because you're not open on Sunday. 
that throughway, and I don't know what this throughway is, by the way, you guys are as residents of New York, I can't picture what this, I, I know travel plazas, right? So, but like that travel plaza will be very busy Monday through Saturday. And, you know, on Sundays, they'll go elsewhere. Who cares? It's, it's better business to allow the company that does very good sales, which is Chick-fil-A, let them do their thing, right? Like, so it just is, it's perplexing to me because it's bad politics and it's bad business. It doesn't make any sense. And, um, and yeah, that's, I guess that's the end of that story. As you can tell, you can see where I fall on this whole thing. But I, I guess I, I also get frustrated because again, I'm not going to get political here, but I just, like, it doesn't make sense from a political standpoint to do bills that are trying to like poke at people, you know, right or left, right or left. That, that, that's just silly, people. Come on. Well, on the opposite side of this is um, there's a county in New Jersey uh, called Bergen County where businesses are closed on Sunday. They legally have to be closed on Sunday. And so, like, that's where the American Dream Mall is. Um, there are, like, five shopping malls within this little area. And there are these laws that prevent them from being open on Sundays. Um partially because of the traffic, because that area is swamped every other day of the week. But also these laws have been in place since like the 1600s. So it's not like there haven't been laws mandating when businesses can and can't open before. I think this is just another iteration of what they're trying to do. Um, I mean, the fact that those blue laws still exist is insane, but the residents want them to exist. Like that's something that they actually want. So and if they change their mind, hello, democracy, you can vote on it, right? Like, so that's the great thing about democracy. We can all have a, a have a, a vote and have an a, opinion in this, right? But at the same time, from the business perspective, you know, you know what you're getting into when you sign on the dotted line. It is stipulated in a contract. Here is what the operating model should be. Here is what the expectation is, right? And when you sign on the dotted line, that should, you know what you're signing, you sign it, that's what you get. You can't, rip the rug out from people and say, nope, it's different because there is a contract, right? So so that's why they have to be grandfathered into this unless they redo the contract and give Chick-fil-A an out, which which might also happen. But I just find it hard to believe that this bill would ever pass because it really is very stupid. Well, and every other business is open seven days a week on the throughway. So it's very clearly targeted. Right. And hey, other options on Sunday. Great. They, they might, they might appreciate, I mean, this is actually going to be better for, well, anyway, I don't know, as you can tell, I, this is why I'm never <laughs> going to get into politics. I would just be on the floor being like, what is wrong with you people? Right and left. Like what, why, what are you doing that for? Sorry. This is not a politics podcast, so we won't get into it. Clearly. You just said you'd be on the floor. I think this is definitely not a politics podcast. <laughs> I'd be face down on the floor going, what is wrong with you people? Because that's how I feel when I read the news every day. Oh, my God. Well, let's get into something happier. Um, we'll talk about Olive Garden. So they reached the $5 billion sales mark, which is a pretty big deal. Um, we've seen a lot of surveys recently. We've written about them. That Olive Garden is a fan favorite. It's there's no doubt about it. It's a fan favorite, um, but it's really a fan favorite among Gen Z. It's their favorite casual dining restaurant, um, according to several surveys. Uh, but it's it's interesting to see that a new generation of people is loving Olive Garden when there are so many options uh, for them to. I mean, Texas Roadhouse, Longhorn Steakhouse, those were all up in there. Um, but 
that Olive Garden is still rising to the top after all these years, I think is very interesting and that it's resonating with younger people. I mean, what do you guys think the future of Olive Garden is? Olive Garden has been slow but steady, very quietly, moving along, just like carrying on and doing really, really well for several years now. Uh, They are the biggest full-service restaurant chain in America by sales, according to our Top 500 report, and have been for a while now. They've been ranked number 18 for the last couple years, which is wild for a full-service restaurant chain, right? Um, And Olive Garden just, they do what they do, and they do it really well. Like, they know what people are coming to Olive Garden for. They know that people are coming for soup salad breadsticks, uh, that they're coming for pasta, that they're not coming for any sort of authentic Italian experience. They don't, you know, pretend that that's what they offer. They kind of lean into, like, the over-the-top, like, campiness of it sometimes. Um, but, like, Olive Garden knows who they are. They know who their fans are. and They know how to cater to them. Pun not intended, but it works. And they just they just do it, and they do it really well. Um the every time a report comes out that says they're Gen Z's favorite full service restaurant, I like do a double take because I think that's so funny. Um, Olive Garden to me feels very like, I don't know, we went there when I was a kid. So it feels like a family restaurant. It feels like, I, I don't know. Um, but good for them. You know, as we all know, we talk about Gen Z every week on here. If restaurants can get Gen Z into their chain, then like, good for you. Um, so this never ending pasta deal that they do regularly, um, literally pays off for them. Uh, I know for a while they were struggling with it, but like everyone was struggling with things. So like, it doesn't really, whatever it's working now it's back. And they did indeed just hit $5 billion in sales on a rolling 52 week period. So it'll be interesting to see like what their contained, like full year sales numbers look like. Um, But yeah, good for them. Now, part of that, of course, is that like inflation, like everybody's sales are just absolutely wild right now. Um, But, you know, Olive Garden, good for you. I think it's great. It's all their like hard work, slow but steady, um, like just doing what they do and not doing anything super like off the wall. They're just they just know what they're good at and they do it and it works for them. Yeah, Olive Garden occupies a couple of corners, I think. Um, of the industry really in a way to itself. And one of them is value. And that's what Leanne was describing. I mean, I think from a value perspective with these deals like unlimited pasta and hello breadsticks, I mean, come on, like that's what I, when I was a teenager, I'd go to Olive Garden just for those breadsticks. Um, and, and there's perceived value there, right? Which is that you get a lot for not as much of a, of a cost. And when you're a teenager or a young adult, that matters because you don't, Either you don't have discretionary income or you don't have much um, and you're very value conscious. So um, so that's one one part of it. But the other thing is, too, is, I mean, there's really not another Italian player that 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 can um, uh, compete against Olive Garden in this way. Right. Like, yes, there's Carabas. Um, there's a few other Carinos. I mean, you, you know, um, and of course there's regional chains. And so this is not to say there's, there's no Italian full service restaurants. There's a lot of them, but on a national perspective, Olive Garden is one of the few that has that exposure coast to coast. It has that value equation. There's really not a lot of Italian offerings 
in fast casual. I mean, you know, of course I have Piata here out of Columbus, a handful of other Italian fast casual, but like, if you want Italian food, um, it's, it's like Fazoli's or Olive Garden for a lot of the country and no knock on Fazoli's. I think there's a lot of people who, who would turn to Fazoli's, but if like you're, let's just throw out a, a, an example of a situation. Let's say you're 19, you have a minimum wage job. You meet somebody, you, you like them, you, you want to impress them. You want to take them out on a date. You want to go to something a little fancier, right? You're not doing Chipotle on this date. Let's go with something a little fancy. We're going to check a movie, but before I'm going to take you to dinner. And let's go to Olive Garden, right? Because it's like, if you want to impress them and you want to do something fancy, Olive Garden. So for those 19-year-olds who want to go on a date and know they can't drink wine yet, uh, Olive Garden, they can't drink wine yet. But they do want to have a little bit of a fancier night out than Chipotle. Olive Garden is like the place, right? So if I were to hypothesize why Olive Garden resonates with Gen Z, that's why. It's value, it's fancy, it's Italian, and it's just in a lot of ways you can't get that anywhere else. And so I think that's a big part of it. But but yeah, I mean, on the whole too, um, macro trends, right? Um, you, you, you just see people wanting to get into restaurants more. Of course, last three years, just move back to experience, back to wanting to be in the restaurant. And Olive Garden um, is at a national level, a very great option for people looking to get into a restaurant and experience it rather than do it off premises. So that's my theory. Um, now this is all coming from somebody who hasn't stepped foot in an Olive Garden in many years. And I have no, nothing wrong with Olive Garden. Um, mostly I just don't want to see my kids make a mess at Olive Garden because the mess that you make at Olive Garden is so much more messy than the mess you would make at Chipotle because <laughs> the red sauce and the noodles. Spaghetti, by the way, is one of the favorite foods for my children, but I will not do that inside a restaurant. So anyway, that's my caveat. Soon, eventually, once they're not little children, yeah, I'll take them to Olive Garden. We've got one right around the corner. Sam, did you take Katie so to Olive Garden up. on your first date? <laughs> because was that, a that story too was so specific. You're 19. You're going to college in Athens, Ohio. <laughs> We met when we were 20, okay. to be fair. We weren't 19. Oh, and Athens oh, okay. does not so have an Olive Garden. Details. Athens does not have an Olive Garden yet. Maybe I can change that through this podcast, the power of podcasting. There Put an go. Olive Garden in Athens. My parents would be thrilled. <laughs> well, so when I was growing up, I wasn't allowed to go to Olive Garden. Um, but I'd see their commercials. And they did it. They made those breadsticks look so mouthwatering. And so I would beg to go to Olive Garden, like literally beg. And I got to go once and it was like one of my favorite meals I've ever had. It's amazing that you went to Olive Garden before you went to Taco Bell. That's like, and every other fast food chain in America. It just blows my mind. I really love breadsticks and I really, and I love salads and that was all I want. I don't think I ate any pasta. I think I literally just ate unlimited salad and breadsticks. And those breadsticks are really good. I mean, they're real darn good. good. Yeah. So they know what they're doing there. And yeah, I mean, and again, so like Olive Garden to a young person is like as good as it gets. And, and, and also by the way, you know, as a parent, I, if I wanted a, a fancy dinner with my kids, like that's about as fancy as I would get. I'm not taking my kids to a steakhouse, right? Olive Garden is a great opportunity for families because it's fancy without breaking your budget. 
Look at that. We should Whatever be a focus down. group for Olive Garden, by the way. I think we're really, uh, really helping them understand their core demographic here. <laughs> but I got to say, their commercials worked. Like on a kid, I was like six or seven. It worked. And so I think that that's probably why Gen Z is also into it. Because it's like, it's part of this nostalgia of growing up and seeing these commercials and thinking that this was a cool place to be and that the food looked good. And I think that that's also part of the, you know, we're talking about nostalgia a lot. Though I did see somebody reference nostalgia, and I didn't enjoy that. Nostalgia. The it's whole like, point like, of nostalgia literally... is that it's not new. <laughs> it's literally impossible. Yeah, I, How does I this didn't work? like it. I didn't like it. Is that an oxymoron? I think that's kind of like an oxymoron. Yes. I refuse to know anything else about this. Please stop talking. <laughs> yes. Agreed. Ain't happening. That's not getting published in NRN, people. <laughs> we'll never use the word nostalgia, I promise. All right, so let's move on to another brand I wasn't allowed to visit when I was growing up, Chuck E. Cheese. Um, never been to a Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> we need to have a Holly therapy session on one of these podcasts to really understand what you and your restaurant relationships, just very perplexing. I just want I also to read wasn't off. Allowed to go to... I just want to read off like the top two hundred restaurant chains and have her say yes or no after all of them. <laughs> well, I wasn't allowed to go to buffets either, um, except there was this commercial on TV that sang every day, and so I used to sing the commercial every single day until they took me to this buffet, and I wore like a really fancy dress and heels. I was like five, and I went to, the... and it was apparently I thought it was amazing. My parents later told me it was like this disgusting rundown buffet. And I was, I loved it though. So, so your parents' standards are too high. That's your problem. But this goes back to our <laughs> Olive Garden thing, right? Which is like kids' standards are really low. So this is why yeah. fancy to them is different than fancy to us. But I'll just throw in a plug for Ponderosa. That was the buffet I had growing up. And man, yeah, that was a special occasion. Yes. Is that an Ohio yeah, thing? Midwest. Okay. Must be a Midwest I'm like, thing. I don't think Ponderosa is a brand. Ponderosa. No, probably not. But like, I definitely also grew up on Ponderosa. Yes, correct. Nice. All right. So Chuck E. Cheese, um, which definitely has not been known for its food, as Sam has talked about on this podcast before, <laughs> um, has been going through some changes, which have included their menu. They've been updating it. They've been trying to make the food um, appetizing. Uh, we've heard about their pizza and milk before, so I'm going to hope that they're making that better. Um, uh, but they've also been shaking up their C-suite. And now there's news that they're exploring a sale or they may be exploring a sale. Um, I mean, I think if you look back at what this brand's been doing for the past few years, a sale seems obvious. It seems like they've been shoring up everything to sell. And then hopefully the brand will have a turnaround. But um, I mean, I think it's it's definitely moving that direction. But what do you think a sale for Chuck E. Cheese would mean? Well, I... I have to imagine there would be a good amount of interest in Chuck E. Cheese because despite my less than glowing review of my one occasion at Chuck, Chuck E. Cheese with my family, um, you know, it's, it's a fairly, it's, it's on trend, even though it's kind of a dated concept. I mean, experiential, entertainment, whatever you want to call it, Chuck E. Cheese is like one of the OGs. And that's, where so much of the industry is going now, which is how do we add an experience uh, to your meal? Um, now, I think Chuck E. Cheese's uh, challenge is that that's 
more highlighting the meal part than the experience. And Chuck E. Cheese is the reverse of that. Chuck E. Cheese is essentially an arcade with food. The new generation of entertainment is a restaurant with entertainment. <laughs> um, and I would challenge uh, Chuck E. Cheese to try to catch up to that because, you know, they'll, they'll lose market share if their food offering is not up to snuff because all the other places, the food offering will be up to snuff. So, um, but that being said, the bones are there. I mean, they have almost 500 locations, perhaps around 500 locations. Uh, at the end of 22, they had almost 500 locations. Um, and um, so the footprint they have is extensive. You know, they do, I think uh, the end of 22, they were doing something like $400 million in sales. That should be better. That's, you know, we can all do math. That's less than 1 million per restaurant. That's not ideal. Um, I don't know how they break out their sales. That's a conversation for another day because, of course, you have your food sales, but then you have your arcade sales. Um, and I'm surprised they do less than 1 million because the amount of times I had to run back to that machine and charge my kids cards to go play games. I, I spent a lot of money there. Anyway, I digress. Um, there is a lot of potential in this brand. Um, that's perhaps not totally being fulfilled. And so that's why I would expect it to be an attractive acquisition. Uh, I know that, you know, Dave and Buster's has been floated as a potential suitor, um, which would kind of make sense, like for them to have sort of an adult uh, offering and a um, kid offering. And um, they just acquired another brand. Dave and Buster's acquired another one last year. And I'm forgetting what the name of that was. Maybe Leanne remembers the name of that place, but, um, but that wouldn't be so out of character for Dave and Buster's. Um, so we'll see private equity, of course, also floated as a, a potential. And that makes a lot of sense too. I think, again, the last thing I'll say about this is this brand is embedded in the sort of fabric of America in a way that a lot of entertainment brands are not. Um, for better or worse, uh, you know, like some other um, chains, it's probably known as much for the negative perceptions of the brand as it is for the positive perceptions of the brand. And I mean, do you guys see that movie that just came out uh, at Halloween, uh, Five Nights at Freddy's, I think? I mean, that the movie was, I, I, I'm not going to go too far down this rabbit hole, but that movie was about a, and I didn't see it, but as I understand it, it's about a restaurant with animatronic animals that come alive and murder people. Um, but obviously, the that whole premise is based on a Chuck E. Cheese restaurant, right? Like that's how much Chuck E. Cheese means to our culture is that these animatronic animals in a restaurant with video games like that's Chuck E. Cheese made that model. And that's, that's a, a touch point for all of us as we grow up. So I say that to mean there's brand equity there. There's emotion there. And if you execute it properly, it could be a really successful business for whoever acquires it. But there are, there would be a long road to kind of get it to a point where it can compete with some of these other entertainment concepts that are out there. Yeah, I agree with everything Sam said. Um, Dave and Buster's acquisition last year was main event, just for main the record. Event. There we go. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. Uh, Chuck E. Cheese has been doing some things, trying some things. Um, I myself have written a number of stories about Chuck E. Cheese this year because they're just one of those brands that like they've been doing some interesting things, but we don't like have anyone who covers them as a beat. Um, so like they a couple of years ago, they renovated a bunch of restaurants in like South Florida. So they have like a new prototype that they could be working with. They um, signed their first licensing deal with a water park, uh, a water park that doesn't exist yet that will open in Northern California that will like have a Chuck E. Cheese section of the water park. Um, they're doing something with like the animatronic animals. Like 
they're calling it a residency, like concerts, but I don't really understand how that's going to work. And I didn't really dive down that rabbit hole after the press conference, which was hosted by the animatronic animals themselves. Anyway, I digress. I'm just saying they've been, but like, they've been like throwing a lot at the wall, it feels like, and trying to see what sticks. Um, And I think uh, a new owner could also be good for them in like helping them focus in and like figuring out like exactly what, because I think like overall Chuck E. Cheese like needs a makeover, like not just the restaurants themselves, but like a branding makeover, because I think you say Chuck E. Cheese to like anyone over the age of 14 probably and they go oh Chuck E. Cheese but you say it to somebody under nine and they're like oh Chuck E. Cheese and it's like I just think there's so much that could be done for like perception um that would end up being really good for business you know if parents were more willing to bring their kids in more than once in their lives um or anything like that and so I think that um figuring out exactly what is going to work for that uh is probably what the brand needs and I think a new owner um could be good for that. And Dave and Buster's, I feel like, has a pretty good, like, public perception. I mean, they've struggled in the last couple of years for the obvious reason that a lot of people have struggled in the last couple of years. But overall, like, you know what Dave and Buster's is. You know what you're getting. And no one, I I mean, like, the average person isn't, like, repelled by it the way they might be by the mere mention of a Chuck E. Cheese. Um So, yeah, I don't know. I'm curious to see how that unfolds. Um, It kind of gave me flashbacks to, it was almost exactly a year ago, we first started hearing rumors of a subway sale. Um, And then that turned into, like, the story of the year, and it's still ongoing. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's only December. Is this going to be our story of the year next year, you know, our merger of acquisition of the year for 2024? Probably not. But I think it'll be interesting to follow along and see what, if anything, becomes of it. Because it could also be a situation where they try for a sale and don't get any realistic bites. And, you know, we all forget about this a year from now. But... Curious to see. Well, I think part of the Chuck E. Cheese problem, though I've never been to one, um, is that there's a lot of screaming children there. Like, I think that that's that's always going to be an issue for Chuck E. Cheese that Dave and Buster's isn't going to have. There's just like screaming children running around in those kind of places. Like, that's something you can't fix. Dave and Buster's, though, has... But no, but hear me out. Dave and Buster's has screaming drunk adults, which really, at the end of the day, not that different than screaming children. Dave and Buster's might actually know what to do with the screaming children. (laughs) Just feels like a very get off my lawn opinion. But um, as as the the parent talking to two non parents, I guess I'll just say, yikes. Um, So. I don't think that's a business problem. I think that's a core demographic issue, right? Like that is a Chuck E. Cheese is a business for children. Let's say it that way, right? Dave and Buster's tends to be a business for adults. Um, and and each business should lean into those strengths. And I think they do. But I think perhaps where Chuck E. Cheese um, has some work to do is the quality of the food and I'm not, I don't know where their mind is at, but I'm guessing they purposefully have cheap to produce food because they think children do not have high standards for food. Uh, Now they're right. By and large, children don't have high standards for food, but the parents have high standards for food. 
and you should not have offensive food to the parent, food that's offensive to the parent, because the parent makes the decision whether they come back. So I think they just have to crank the dial a little bit on that food quality so that parents will say, well, yes, my kids are having fun here, but I'm also not hating this pizza that I'm eating while I sit in the booth and let my kid run amok around this giant box of a footprint and have fun. Um, because yeah, my kids are of that demographic of the group Leanne was describing where they, if I say, Hey, you guys want to go to Chuck E. Cheese? They would lose their minds. They would go nuts. They would bounce off the walls and, you know, and then we would go and they would have an absolute blast because that's exactly what happened. Um, and they couldn't tell you even what food was served when we went because that's least of, of their worries, I, however, will never forget the food I had on that experience because I was offended by it. Um, and I'm not trying to put Chuck E. Cheese on blast. I'm just saying wasn't their priority that day. So I get it. But crank the dial up a little bit. <laughs> well, I'm sure they're going to heed your advice, Sam. You are the most important voice in food service. Yeah, of course. Yes, they're going to listen to me. I mean, I think they ha they will have no choice. You have to have good food today, right? And and that's partly because the standards will get higher and higher for kids. But more importantly, they're higher and higher for the parents. And if you can't win over the parents, you're not going to win over the kids. They got and all the money. To be clear, that's what I meant by improving public perception. Holly, there was not a world in which I thought Chuck E. Cheese could change enough to convince you to go to one. Nor do I think that that would appeal to them at all. <laughs> um, but if you make it palatable to the parents, like Sam said, they're the ones who get to decide if they come back as a family. So that's where I think they need to be spending their energy. And I'm sure they will. They've already started some menu revamps. So I think that they know that that's an area they have to work on. And I think it'll be ever evolving throughout the next year as they start this sale process. Um, well, this is our last show of the year, guys. So it's been a good one. Yes. Great year. Indeed. Happy holidays. <laughs> ho, ho, ho. So I'm going to turn it over to Joanna Fantosi, who interviewed Sawyer Hemsley, the co-founder and chief brand officer of Crumble Cookies. But first, I'm going to wish all of our listeners a happy holiday season and a happy new year. And I'm going to thank you guys for joining me. Thanks, Holly. Thanks, Holly. Um, well, I guess just before we dive into uh, the brand in uh, in general, um, I would love to know a little bit about you and your background. Yeah, for sure. So my name's Sawyer Hemsley. I grew up in a small rural town in Idaho. If you've ever seen Napoleon Dynamite, that's where I grew up. We have more cows than people. And I absolutely loved it. That's where I learned to the love of baking and eating, you know, desserts and and different cooked foods. Uh, there wasn't a lot of places to eat or to go out and get a sweet treat. So we were always in the kitchen. Um, and then throughout my life, I just observed my mom and my grandma always there making cookies or cinnamon rolls or crepes or Danish. And so my love for baking was always there, but I never thought it would be a career. And then I went off to college, studied communication studies and a dual minor in multimedia and marketing and I was set to go to Arizona to work in an ad agency, but I always had a passion for entrepreneurship. And I had taken, you know, entrepreneurship classes in college 
And I was also heavily involved on campus, as in like student government. And I planned all the events up there while I was, you know, associated with the students. And I just had a good time. And so I, I ran for student body president my last year of the university and lost and said, I need to find something to fill this void because I always like to keep busy on top of my normal schoolwork and job. And so I said, let me start a business with my cousin. And this is going to be something for fun and something to just fill this void. And so um, we researched together and I said, let's bring a cookie shop to this valley where the university was. It's great because there's college students. It's tight knit. Uh, people will support small businesses and there's nothing like it. And so we chased a, a, a idea Uh, never imagining that it would be anything aside from just a side hustle and something for fun. Mm -hmm. And so I was in, again, my senior year of college, we opened this up. We had no knowledge of how to run a bakery. Keep mm -hmm. in mind, right? I only had the experience watching my grandparents or my, my mom make these baked goods. But what we did is we researched network, watched YouTube, read a lot of cookbooks, uh, did all that we could to be able to become masters of the craft. And a lot of things we did backwards and a lot of things we had to learn through trial and error. Mm -hmm. And so we actually purchased the equipment, rented the building prior to even having a service or product, which you don't do in business, right? You always have a really solid product, a really solid service, and then get the additional things to create that brick and mortar or, or however you're setting up your business. Mm -hmm. And so... Long story short, we jumped into the cookie business, and now we're here today. Uh, it's my full-time career with over 900-plus locations, and we've expanded into a second country, which is Canada, and hopefully soon a third country, which will be Europe. So never say never. Chase your dreams and uh, go after what you're passionate about, and, and you'll learn to love it, and you'll learn to become a master of it. I love that. And um, so where are you guys expanding in Europe? I'm curious. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to talk prematurely, but we've been in talks to expand into London. And so we're going right into the heart there. And we have a great group of um, franchise partners that are ready to go. And so if we can tie up the deal, we'd love to open up as quickly as possible five locations there and really be on the world stage. That's amazing. Um And so since this is the our last podcast of the year before uh, before the new year, I have to ask, how was 2023 for Crumble and what are your resolutions for the brand? Yeah, so 2023 was interesting. I feel like uh, a lot of people this year, um, you know, are trying to get healthy, honestly. And moving into 2024, I think they're trying to get healthy too. Um, so Our challenges and our unique setup here at Crumble is always trying to capture not only new customers, but, you know, infuse excitement and motivation and inspiration into our current fans and customer base. And so what we've really tried to do this year is we've tried to develop new cookie flavors that are nostalgic, that are going to bring in people into our stores. And then we've also tried to really capture the hearts and minds of our audience through doing lots of partnerships. So if you just recently saw our Wonka partnership, uh, it was a super fun thing that's really gotten people curious, not only about 
Wonka and this new movie coming out, but this new cookie that was specifically designed for that partnership. We've done partnerships in the past too with, you know, bigger brand names like Oreo and Sweetest Fish and all of your nostalgic favorite treats. And I feel like that's been really working well for us in 2023. Another thing that we launched is we refreshed our brand. We've been open for five, six years, I should say. And we wanted to give something new and fresh, but still building off of our foundation branding that we initiated with. And so if you haven't seen it, it's really, really quite the same, but we've, you know, darkened our pink a little bit to stand out even more. We've gotten a unique wordmark font that is unique to us because what we've noticed, kind of jumping back to give context, is a lot of dessert, you know, companies and, and startups have now started to try to mimic similar, you know, models and visuals as Crumble, which is very flattering, but we always want to be top of mind and different, better and special. And so it was obvious, obvious to us that we needed to change uh, slightly so that we could stand out above the rest of the market. And so this, hence this brand refresh, we also um, integrated some new style of illustration. Because here at Crumble, our mission is to bring people together over a box of the best cookies in the world. The cookie is just that channel, the catalyst to bring people together and to create a moment that you'll always treasure and uh, think back on and reflect on. And so through this new branding, through these partnerships, everything that we do, we in 2023, we wanted to bring people together. And we're excited to infuse that into 2024. And in 2024... It's really exciting because also with this refresh, we actually dropped the name Cookies. So we go by Crumble and no longer Crumble Cookies. Uh, we'll still always have Cookies be our number one, but we're excited to explore other other bakery items in our storefronts that are going to be just as exciting for our customers. And so our first one will launch uh, that is a non-cookie product come January. That's amazing. First of all, you are a mind reader because you just went through pretty much the next like five questions. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, I don't have to ask anything now. Um, and I actually, I do want to talk about the the brand refresh. Um, hold, so hold that thought. But I, I am just curious, is the Wonka partnership, is that the first time that you guys had partnered with like a movie or TV show kind of thing? Yeah. Wonka has been our, our biggest to date movie partnership uh we were so close to partnering with the barbie movie which would have been perfect because totally. of the pink and but um one of the requirements was to be international and at that time of the contract we were yet in canada um and so they wanted someone a little bit bigger but yes we plan to go hard um with partnerships when it comes to movies um, other brands that are larger throughout the the nation or inter international brands. And then we hope to capture a lot more influencers and celebrities into 2024 and really helping them create these flavors that are unique to them and to their audiences. I love that. And what was that Wonka cookie like? Yeah. So the Wonka cookie, they had very specific specs that they wanted us to follow. We, we kind of were going off of the older version of Wonka and the purple and, and um, you know, the fun colors. But they're like, nope, we are the new age Wonka. We want maroon. If you haven't seen some of their advertising, yeah. main Wonka is in maroon. And so we said, well, 
perfect. Maybe a darker red. We went with a red velvet sandwich cream cheese cookie. And then we had a chocolate covered coated rocks um, all along the edge of one side with a gold beautiful Wonka W on the top. So it was a very elevated cookie, very novelty-esque cookie that looked like it could be picked off of a Wonka tree or sitting on a platter in that little chocolate waterfall garden, as you see in the original movie. It was so fun to recreate something so magical. And it was such a great partnership because Wonka is known for sweets and sweet smiles and this imagination and this different world of sweets. And we were so lucky to be able to partner with that because it just, it's, we're, we're in the sweet world, you know, we're in the cookie world, we're cookie land. And so it was, it was the perfect movie partnership to launch what's to come. Great. And I, I'm not going to sing, but I'm singing it in my head. <laughs> the world <laughs> of imagination. Um, yes. And um, so I, I'm glad that you mentioned like a couple of things that, that are happening with the brand refresh. A couple of the things did stand out to me. Number one, that you dropped cookies from the name and also changing the pink a little bit. Um, so something that I always found to be interesting is that a lot of dessert companies do use pink. And I'm curious why you think that is and what is the significance of kind of changing the shade a little bit? Yeah. Well, you know, when I first looked at Crumble, I want to give you this context. I didn't really think about how other bakeries used pink. And I think a lot of people jumped to that conclusion like, oh, pink is always used. I didn't. I was a little naive. Um, How I chose these colors alongside my business partner is I wanted to pick a color that really resonated a story or had something behind it. And as I grew up, um, one of my favorite things in this entire world was a pink Cadillac. And um, it was the prettiest pink and I would see it driving down the road uh, and it had a black and white interior, just like you see in our branding. And when we were thinking about the brand colorways and the palette and the name and who our audience was going to be, like we knew from the get-go that we wanted to go after moms and that we wanted to go after soccer moms specifically. And I was like, you know what, this pink from this Cadillac that has a story and is special to me and the color pink for this audience is perfect. And so that is where we selected our specific pink and fused it into Crumble. And it's been the best decision because if you put cookie boxes in a huge gymnasium and there was one pink one without any words or logos, you would know that it's crumble. And so the pink has been so unique to us and we've really developed the pink throughout the years to be known as the crumble brand. And so that's that was kind of the context behind selecting the pink color. And I think people choose pink because it is something that feels premium it's it's not in your it's not too much in your face and it's also not too dull but it just feels light and there's energy behind it and it's something that you want to hold something that we've really tried to capture with our pink is we want our boxes to be instagrammable we want people to show off that they went to crumble and that they have the pink box it's almost like um, they're proud of it and they, they're attached to it. And so that's something that we feel like has been a huge advantage, uh, you know, after all these years selecting that pink color is that people just resonate with it well. And so hopefully that answers some of your question, but it's been such an amazing color. And to go into kind of why we changed the color to a darker pink is because our light pink was perfect, but it was really hard 
when we were creating apps and websites and when we were trying to print on different materials. And so as we move internationally and as we keep growing, we want to make sure that our brand is consistent in all forms of assets. And so we needed to change it to something that would be able to, um, you know, resonate consistency across the brand, but also stand out amongst those other lighter pinks that have now been utilized. So we're super excited about it. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, and um, I, lo- I think it's so interesting that you uh, that you dropped cookies. I was going to ask why, but it definitely seems like you're kind of exploring some maybe some other bakery options. Are you able to say a couple of the ideas that you're considering? Or Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a, a, a secret. I think really we want Crumble to be known for cookies first and foremost. Like we, we're not trying to be shy away from cookies. We want to own the cookie world. Uh, but we also want to enhance what our what we've built over the years, our brand, you know, our networks, uh, the education that we've learned behind the science of baking and infuse our flavors into other baked goods that everyone loves and, and grew up with. And so we're looking into, you know, new product development uh, like cinnamon squares. If you've seen kind of a leak there, I, I posted about that on my personal socials. We want to look into you know, muffins and brownies and pies and, you know, anything imaginable that you could find in a bakery setting, we're going to go after. And so we're super excited about that. Um, Again, just to emphasize, our cookies will be our number one. And if you want to add another sweet treat on top of those cookies or mix and match a sweet treat with your cookies, you'll be able to do that in 2024. That's really exciting. Um, And I think that that's a really great differentiator as well, um, because uh, as as you've said, I feel like since since you guys have exploded, there have been a ton of other cookie brands that that we've seen uh, pop up. Especially, I'm in New York, so they're they're here a lot. Um, right. There's there's a lot of different uh, cookie brands out there. I'd say you guys are probably the fastest growing. Um, and do you think then that kind of expanding your repertoire a little bit is uh, would help the the brand uh, st- stand out even more? I do. I really do. I think that, um, you know, new bakery items are going to bring in new people that maybe don't love cookies because not everyone loves cookies, although I feel like they should. Um, But maybe they love cinnamon rolls. Maybe they love muffins. Maybe they love some of those items that I mentioned. And so I think it's going to help with new customer accusation. And then I think um, it's also going to help people just feel more excited that they're getting more variety across the board. Uh, So they don't just bring to the party cookies, they're bringing all these different sweets and it's from a premium brand that's fun, energetic, and they're going to be the best um, guest at the party because they brought the best item. That's what my hope is, right? (laughs) Obviously, I'm super biased towards Crumble product, but yes, I think it's going to really help us and I'm super excited. Mm -hmm. Great. I I also just am the believer, I'm going to tell you this, that, you know, I think it's important to maintain simplicity across a brand, but I also think it's important to listen to your customers and it's also important to adapt and innovate. And if you're not adapting and innovating, you can continue to grow and that's great. But I think that um, you're going to slow down growth. You're going to slow down excitement. And we're in 2023. Everything is moving fast and people want new things. And if you've built a strong brand and you have a good product, um, already, why not expand that product mix if you're able? Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, and so I'm curious, how do you test and develop new products at Crumble? Like, how did you decide, for example, on those cinnamon squares? Yeah. So we have a huge testing program. A lot of we've researched if other companies do this. We haven't found a lot of research. So we've developed our own testing program and we actually have 50 testing sites across the nation. Anywhere we look at different demographics, you know, we look at um, geographical areas, age groups. And so when we test not only cookies, but these new products, we push these out and we gain customer feedback. And so these cookies have to pass appearance, taste, quality, hold tests. You know, we have a, a whole list of things that we get feedback on. And if they do pass and they get over an 80% or higher, they make it on the menu. And so this is something that can last anywhere between, you know, three months to six months to a year. And we're only pushing out things that are accepted and received well by customers. Nothing ever by us personally at HQ is just thrown on the menu. It always has to be customer first, because if they don't want it, they don't want to buy it, then we're not going to push it. We're not going to be in business if we're just pushing what we want, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, it makes sense. Um and um, so something you said that that uh, really struck me is that I, is how do you maintain that balance of innovation and simplicity and making sure that you like hone in on what exactly your brand is all about, but while also like keeping customers on their toes and, and innovating? Yeah, I think from the beginning, Crumble's always been about that surprise and delight. As you know, we have a rotating menu weekly and we fell into that, you know, with our first couple of stores. We never initially started with the weekly rotating menu, but it's something that we really grasped onto early on. And I think it's been something that's revolutionized the baking industry by having a rotating menu weekly. Um, a lot of these bakeries just have their set, you know, uh, baked goods in their display windows and that's it. And maybe they'll throw out an LTO here and there. But uh, it's been a challenge, but it's been a challenge that we've accepted and that we've almost mastered, I would say, at this point. And so with that, having another surprise and delight moment, now that our customers are used to that rotation, is going to be key to our success because they're going to be able to have a different offering that's going to surprise and delight them. That's a scarcity item that comes back, you know, on a seasonal or monthly basis, aside from just that cookie menu. We're also looking into uh, a beverage program that's going to really surprise and delight and add value to our customers so that they can get even more options as they come in and visit us on store or online. Okay, that's awesome. When I, I'm not sure exactly what direction you guys are taking it, but when I think about cookies and baked items, you think about uh, milk, coffee, maybe hot chocolate, tea. Mm -hmm. Zach, is that in the in the right? Yeah, I, I won't I won't give you too much, but our beverage program is going to be awesome. It's going to be something that complements the cookies well. Everything we do is we want everything to complement our cookie because we don't want to overcomplicate it. We want to be known for cookies, but it has to go back to complementing and enhancing what we're what we've built and what we're known for. And so that's always top of mind when we're looking at beverage or any new product. Is is this going to work or is this going to overcomplicate and confuse? And we don't want that. Yeah, absolutely. Especially since you're uh, expanding so fast and you want to make sure uh, that your store owners are able to uh, execute everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so besides, very exciting that you guys are expanding uh, to London next year. Uh, what are other expansion plans for Crumble in 2024 and beyond? Yeah. So, um, you know, we hope we have about 200 more stores to open here in the nation. And then um, London and Europe in general is our next step. 
Uh, we'll have, we're currently building out Canada. I believe we have almost like six or seven stores up there, but towards the end of um, next year, we hope to have close to a hundred up there. And um, as we go into London, we hope to go into more parts of Europe, uh, whether that be France or any other areas. Our, our franchise group over there has experience, you know, growing food and beverage in Europe. And so we really feel confident that we can take Europe by storm and grow to be that international brand that we've always dreamed of. So that is our goal in 2024. We obviously don't want to go over ambitious, but we feel like cookies are a universal love language along with other baked goods. You know, it makes people smile and uh, we we're going to continue to be top of mind in that household name, not only here in America, but in, in the world. Very exciting. Actually, that is an amazing note to end on. Um, so uh, thank you so much sorry, for uh, for speaking to me today. Uh, I, I, it's clear you're so passionate about the brand. So uh, it, was a, it was a joy to uh, to do this interview.